I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. I'm so excited to bring this episode to you with Kenny Werner, and Kenny's a world-class pianist and composer who's been doing that for over 40 years, and in 1996, he wrote his landmark book, Effortless Mastery, Liberating the Master Musician Within, and the reason this had such an impact on me is not because I have a musical background, which I don't, I actually don't play any musical instruments, but his book is all around mastery and unlocking our creative potential, and mastery is available to everyone. And he uses music as the metaphor and the theme of what the best musicians has done, have done. And it's all about dropping your ego and getting out of your own way. It's kind of when you're not thinking about playing or performing, that's when you do your best work. And this book, this conversation, this is all around creativity, unlocking our own mastery, whether that be around sports, art, or business. And I just love this conversation with Kenny. I've learned so much from him over the years. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation around effortless mastery with Kenny Werner. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I have ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. 
The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by 8 Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to 8sleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's 8sleep.com forward slash Sean. Kenny, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, your your work's had a, a big impact on me, so I'm really looking forward to exploring this. But I, I always love pulling back the curtain and kind of getting a better understanding for the person behind the journey. Uh, so I would love to know, just to kind of hear you articulate some of your early days and, and what the early version of Kenny Warner looked like. Well, I was kind of a prodigy, which was a positive and a negative. So the early days looked like dazzling teachers and parents and relatives, but nobody really seeing all the deficiencies that I didn't have to work on because I had this shiny object that everybody was liking. So there were other parts of me not developing emotionally, uh, you know, psychologically, uh, even, you know, physically. Um, uh, Today, I noticed that there are parents that when they have prodigies they're much more mindful of rounding out their life but uh, parents in my time i think they didn't know a lot about parenting they were good parents but uh, they didn't participate so this thing came up and that was it you know you could flunk algebra but the teacher didn't care because she said oh we'll see you in Carnegie hall or you could be bad at gym but then you can get a note from the music director that you have to go (laughs) you know so um it was empty. It was kind of lonely and uh, impressive, but everybody was, you know, I kind of got a little numb about it. Uh, people's reactions was just like something on the outside of a shell. And I was inside like, you know, don't you guys see this is no big deal, you know. Um, early, then later on, uh, playing weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, basically at my bar mitzvah. Uh, we had a hip band. My father found a hip band. So I sat in next thing you know, he hired me. So from 13 on till about 30, I was playing ways and bar mitzvahs. And I always had a philosophical leaning and philosophical knowledge, but I also had, uh, you know, a lot of negatives and it, uh, you know, went through the negatives and abusing certain things. And then I got to college and it went crazy and, and all this, uh, and the music continued to play itself. That's the funny thing. The music didn't show anything about what was going on with me. It could be the worst day in the world. And when I played, the music had a life of its own, which made every, kept everybody at bay. Oh, he's cool. Did you hear it? He must be in good shape. He just played that, you know. And that just kind of continued until I started filling in the rest of my life and, and stopping certain things. And, and that came about the mid-30s. And then more and more of the philosophies that I had articulated uh, came out more just around that same time I was asked to teach in different places. And those things just emerged. And from a period of uh, 10 or 15 years of teaching off the top of my head, the evolution to 
you know, the modern era for me, which was 96, having written that book, Effortless Mastery. Yeah, I'm wondering why this change happened for you. You mentioned in the mid-30s. Was there something that happened where th- this new awakening for you took place? It wasn't so much a new awakening of the fact that on some level of my creative mind, the awakening was there from the beginning. And then the rest of my life felt like it was stuck in the mud. And I couldn't actualize that except when I played or I talked. Even to this day, I consider my talent... Well, twofolds, music, which also entails composing. And this is the more unique talent, being able to explain it. Mm -hmm. Usually the people that uh, are that talented have very, uh, you know, understated explanations that don't actually, you know, you just get it as a personality thing, but not, well, what do you do or what is it, you know? And I seem to be uh, very detailed in explaining it right from the very beginning before I was even trying to explain it, I was just answering a question or showing up for a lesson. And um, by the mid, by I'd say the mid thirties, it was just not appropriate. I I thought I would be making changes when I left my twenties. I thought, okay, you did a lot of fooling around. You did a lot of crazy stuff. Now you're 30, you know, you, uh, you know, I guess you'll be just getting it together and becoming more of a responsible. I mean, in the seventies, was a crazy time. You could be crazy and you weren't necessarily that aware of it because there was a lot of craziness around you, you know, uh, until uh, some of the viruses of the eighties, you know, uh, and everybody suddenly, you know, had to cool out. But so I thought around as I'm turning to 30, this will naturally happen. I'll mature. And then I realized that I was addicted and stuck here I was still doing things that I said, well, I probably won't be doing those things anymore because I'm 30 and mature. Now I'm thinking about my career more, you know, I mean, I was performing sometimes really nice things, but very sporadically and still doing these weddings, you know, which I grew to hate and then hate myself for playing them, you know? So when it didn't change, there was a really kind of rough. And then I met my wife who I thought was healthy in every way I wanted to be. And I thought, well, that's that's perfect. I was like 31. I'll just grow along her lines and then fill in what I never was able to do before. And it didn't work that way at all. She just, uh, she's still here, but uh, she was my girlfriend, but she's one of those people that don't give up. But it, it got to be a very, a big schism because I couldn't change my life. The fact that the clock had turned to 30 didn't change anything. Um, until I intentionally around 35, 36 said, well, I've got to do whatever I can do to change because I'm not getting the maximum out of my talent. I'm spending little, very little time thinking about my talent. I'm thinking about what I was thinking about in my twenties. Um, my wife and I, well, my girlfriend and I, that this could never be a thing unless I could become more of a person. And so I did start to do different disciplines. And from that time, I've done one thing or another to learn the the lessons of life, not music, you know, and it's just gotten better and better with some huge dips and then getting better again. And in many ways, this is the best time of my life. Well, you mentioned the dips. That's life, right? We, we, we think it's going to be this, this linear process and life's not linear at all. Um, and, yeah, and, you, and you think you're filling in substance and then you go off that, that and that can be, 14 years or 15. 
and then you find and you're still doing stuff you know it's very life is really complicated and the best my favorite movies are the ones that show all the uh you know dichotomy and the uh hip, not just hypocrisy but you know how it just you could be all that and you could also be all this you know how oh, 100% yeah, yeah. It, one, one of the things you bring up that that I love is, and I think this conversation, this is going to be about life. Uh, this isn't going to be about music. I, I have no musical background, no musical talent. That, that, that's my wife. Um, but but I first read your book, Effortless Mastery, um, and it, it, it's centered around music. But for me, it was, whoa, like this is 100% applicable to life. And I, I grew up playing sports, and, and something that you mentioned a minute ago is your ability to articulate your talents and distill down that. that. That's one of the things I saw. You might have the most talented people in the entire world. They have no idea how they do it. Um, that's one of the things I appreciate so much about you is, is the creative elements that that make up some of these things. I, I'm wondering for you, is that just a talent you've always had that you were able to distill and articulate this, or was this an evolution for you? It was a talent I always had. I, I never worked very hard for anything until I learned to work for things later, way later. You know, from that healing period in the mid-30s on, I learned how to intentionally work on something, but all the quote unquote wisdom that came to me, it just seemed like it it would just arrive. In fact, the book is the end of a process, not the beginning of a process. I started to teach and things were coming out of my mouth. And those things were blowing people away. And I knew that and part of me wanted that to happen. But the wisdom would just come. When I wrote the book, I actually went back to, I mean, it's not like I never, I read a few books that were very important to me because they agreed with what I already organically knew. Not that I didn't like them because they agreed with me. I liked them because they were ancient, which meant what I knew was drawing on a wisdom that has always existed. It wasn't me just making something up. I found out after the fact, uh, you know, scholarship, it was never scholarship, but that came after the fact of something I knew, like, you know, what color the wall is. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of natural, uh, an avatar kind of relationship to it. Um, and it's just what's enhanced it more than anything is passing along to people through teaching. And uh, over and over again, it just kind of drives it deeper into your consciousness. And finally, I've noticed the integration into other areas of my life. It doesn't disappear because it's not music anymore. It's life. Hmm. And I had a long time like that. I, the knowledge for music was so easy to grab onto. And even the psychology and everything. But it wouldn't necessarily translate in terms of hold, watch, you know, controlling one's emotions or not getting caught up in the future or not obsessing uh, or anxiety or depression. And that's been a long road. I wasn't particularly talented at that. I had to work at it. You bring but I already knew it existed because of my relationship to music. That was the crazy thing. Mm -hmm. Well, you bring up one of the beautiful things as well, and, and that's around teaching. By by teaching, we we absorb and we learn those lessons so much more than even than even the student. That's that's the beauty in that. You mentioned reading some some ancient wisdom, um, so you could see for for thousands of years. Any of those books um, that that you still remember that had a deep impact for, on you? Yeah, well, <clears throat> it was ancient wisdom, but it wasn't an ancient book. The Sufi message. Hazrat Enya Khan. I mean, he's, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he's a 20th century man. But Sufism is very old. <clears throat> Reading um, parts of the, uh, of the uh, Bhagavad Gita, which talked, I didn't read it all, but which talked about constantly, don't get caught up in what you're doing. This is all a play. 
this is a play on the physical level and there's a whole thing going on another level and uh you know anything that when then i when i was kind of uh getting sober in the 80s i started reading uh louise hay and uh you know creative visualization and things that were you could call new age but of course they were based on ancient principles um uh zen in the art of archery which i read back in the 70s i really was captivated by that and so that's quoted a lot in my book how to really master something you have to get the mind out of the way in order to stay with the process otherwise the mind talks you out of that process before you've arrived at what you were trying to achieve you know and all that kind of came together and then i started teaching at berkeley and, and they what they now call the effortless mastery institute and suddenly what I was teaching here and there and a day at a school here, three days there, were courses. Hmm. And that was about six, seven, seven years ago, something like that. And that meant every week I had to parcel. The, the answer in the book is the four steps. They are reprogramming steps, not just changing your habits, but really reprogramming old neurotic, uh, neurotic, actually, yes, yeah. neurological patterns and just trying to create new ones that support what you're trying to do, even if you're not trying to be the wisest person in the world, but your old patterns are what keeping you from mastering whatever you're trying to learn to do. So in a way, it still was about music or mastering anything. But yes, the spinoff from it, what I found when I wrote the book is how many people were getting things from it that weren't musicians. So uh, as I mentioned to you, my new book, which is coming out October 19th, is fully uh, uh, open up to what people found in the first book. It's, uh, it's called Becoming the Instrument. And it really, it follows up on what Effortless Mastery was, but A, I've learned so much more from having taught this, this philosophy as courses. That meant you stayed with these steps for a whole semester. Then you went on to the other two steps for the next semester it caused those steps to become much more vivid with other levels that you could achieve within them instead of just do this and then you just do that. And uh, of course, I being the one that was putting it out there, it refined my own actions and understanding. I felt my own vibration elevating as I had to repeat back to your original point as I had to repeatedly disseminate this information. Hmm. You mentioned that getting deeper on, on those extra levels. That's one of the things I love on the, on the pursuit of mastery is the games inside the games. You uncover there's so much more depth uh, that you can explore and you can go to. Um, yeah, your original book, Effortless Mastery, when I first read it, the, just the, the clicking for me. Um, so, so I grew up playing, playing lacrosse and trying to develop my mastery around that sport. And one of the things I started to understand and then your book just made so apparent for me was when I wasn't thinking as much, that is when my best play was happening. When I was overanalyzing, when I was thinking, that's when I was getting caught up in my ego, right? Like, and, and being concerned with how I was going to perform. Um, so I, I would love if you could just even describe how, how you define effortless mastery. Well, that's, that's the common denominator. That's what made the book so popular. Everybody has had that experience. They've, there's a few experiences they've had. One is they've had, well, of course, I was always talking to musicians, that one or two gigs where it was all happening. And when it was all happening, they almost were watching themselves play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they had that separation. Now that's an ancient principle uh, from, from India. That, that 
the, the, the Vedas even, uh, uh, the witness, they call it the witness consciousness. When you are the witness consciousness, you watch the physical person or the body perform, or you watch a situation. You watch the sadness. It doesn't mean you don't experience the sadness, but that part of you that witnesses it is already kind of risen above it. And the more you practice witness consciousness, the more consistent the thing you're watching tends to be. So everybody's had that experience where, for whatever reason, they didn't care, and it was the best gig of their life. They've also had this experience. The next gig was terrible <laughs> because they were more interested in that result than what got them there. If, if not caring, at least in a strat strategic way, not obsessing about their performance made them play better, then logic would dictate work on not being attached to the performance. In other words, let the body perform. That's a very much of a sports thing. You program the body, but the mind is best left out of it. That's what creates those super moments. So, but once someone's had that result, they're thinking about the result. The next time, they're more concerned about having that result again. And of course, it goes worse than ever. And then they can never choose to have that experience. And they can never show it to anyone else. And that sets up the, the appetite for effortless mastery. Effortless mastery is the study of having that experience more consistently. And eventually that just being your experience and you don't even react to it. And the way it is, is by touching the instrument or doing the action without attachment, learning to do it from the body or the way I bring people into it is very simple with a breathing exercise that's very easy and very short. What I realized about breathing exercises is that people's egos have time to overcome it, right? Okay, I'm just breathing. I'm beginning to think, oh, let me just keep breathing. Let me keep breathing. And the ego is always smarter than I am. So it sort of takes over. So I'll just watch myself breathe for 20 seconds. So like even right now, go. And then stop. And actually, if all you did was watch yourself breathe, in other words, not think breathing is a spiritual thing or it leads to something, but literally there's a little pump in there or whatever they call it, and you're just watching that machine work for 20 seconds. That is what I call the space in the book, the space. When you work from the space, you're always ready to have a great performance because you're not going to reach out to sabotage it. Ironically, you don't think you're sabotaging it. You think you're trying to keep it going. Mm. But the action of getting in the way and keeping it going is what breaks it. It's like you're sitting on the side of a stream on the rocks, and you think you can keep this stream going by getting in the stream and paddling. All you're doing is getting in the way. The stream is already... If you imagine a stream that's always happening, then your job is to witness it. That keeps it flowing. And then you have to teach your body to be part of that stream. So it all sets up that way. There are a lot of things that, that kind of teach a similar thing, but I came at that organically step after step, especially uh, from the evolution of teaching. Do you remember the first time you entered that space? Well, you see, 
that's the weird thing. Why I can explain it and why I could come up with exercises for people is even more weird because I never really had that problem. I felt so inadequate. Now, I'm one of those people like a Judy Garland or a person that was always in pain unless they were performing. So no one ever had to tell me to like let it out because I was really ready to. And don't let an artist ever tell you that's like that, that they don't feed off of how everybody's, you know, blown away or the eyes opening or the ear, you know, of course we are at that moment. We feel valid. The problem is you can't be blowing people away all the time. You have to have substance that's not dependent on people being around going, wow, you know, but it makes for a hell of a performance. The reason I was able to come up with all the things that people can relate to in whatever area, not even music, is because I had to solve my other life problems. And as I figured out ways of doing that, they also became tremendous ways of practicing the music. Or, as anybody that read the book, practicing other things. Or just a way to look at this moment instead of being burdened by the future. And the, the next book really teaches getting into the space, get into this moment. From this moment, there is no past, there is no future. From this moment, there's nothing to compare. From this moment, you don't worry about success or failure because entering this moment in itself is a success. Hmm. So, for example, from the conscious mind, which is what I call uh, this, it's the ego, it's whatever you want to call it. I have a, I don't know if you curse on here, but I have a name for it too that I You, you can say whatever you call. want, Kenny. I lovingly call it the shithole. <laughs> you know, the the uh, quicksand or the mud, whatever, that I let my mind go into. And now I've learned I don't have to go there. I kind of take this other fork and I watch myself breathe. And once I brought it to the moment, all I'm thinking about is what I could be doing of substance right now. Or if I'm having a mood, the mood is gone for 20 seconds. When I come back, I don't necessarily have to go back into that mood. Or if I'm overwhelmed by all the things I have to do, when I come out of that space, I just pick one of them and I start doing it. Hmm. Everything that binds us is not the pandemic and it's not the uh, quarantine and it's not anything external. It's not who gets elected president. It is our mind. And when you really realize that and you have time uh, uh, that that's what you want to work on, then you tend to be tenacious. I mean, I tended to be tenacious. Everything was in the mind. Okay, the way I'm feeling now, what's in my mind that's causing this? Because, you know, the moment just doesn't have that. This moment is remarkably, it's, I call it the space because there's a, plenty of space between you and the clouds. I look at you and me. The analogy I like the best is we are like the sun. We have a light, we have a power, we have a heat, we have a brightness. And that never changes. But we feel differently every day. Uh, the analogy would be clouds. So there are some days where at three o'clock in the afternoon, it looks like it's almost nighttime. But you would never say, wow, the sun is so weak today. It has no power, it has no light. Your knowledge of outer nature assures you that the sun is just as brilliant just as lit, just as powerful as ever. But clouds, that's why it's such a great analogy. They're temporary. And they block something that never changes. 
So more and more, I just kept thinking about one thing. I just kept thinking about that. No matter how I feel, I'm simultaneously aware that I'm the same light with the same love and inspiration that I ever had, but I'm blocked by some temporary clouds. And then I would just, if I went back into the space, I would feel the sun peek through immediately. That doesn't mean the clouds wouldn't come back. And in fact, another trick I found, don't try to block the clouds. Don't try not to feel a certain way. It's just exactly what it wants to pull you in. So for 20 seconds, I am the light. Now, I'm ready to go back to my problems willingly. And I might find, where'd you go? What happened? Sometimes that stays or it's so much lighter than it was before I took that break. So for people who have been trying to reprogram themselves for years, there's a couple of things I discovered through the gift of teaching. One, when you watch your breath, don't think of it as a particularly meaningful gesture. If you turn on your engine and open the lid of the car and you watch your engine, you wouldn't think, oh my God, this is so profound. Well, there's a little motor in there that sucks in and pushes out a pump or whatever. You're just going to watch yourself breathe. And I like this phrase, you've been doing it all your life. I've always been breathing, so I don't need a breathing exercise. I'm a virtuoso. I breathe through every mood and every good news and bad news and tragedy and new relationships. I was breathing, but I'm just going to watch it breathe, watch it breathe for like 20 seconds or whatever. So make it short, makes it portable, keep it from being meaningful. It's just watching. It turns out that if you're just watching yourself breathe, all the clouds disappear. The light shines on you in that moment because that's actually all we are. And everything else is, as they say in the Vedas or the Mahabharata or the, you know, Bhagavad Gita, a play. It's all a play. So if you keep working on one thing, your weight shifts, the weight of your attention shifts more and more in that way. And the difference between having that philosophy and actually manifesting it is having an exercise. Without an exercise, philosophy remains philosophy, and you remain unable to, uh, you know, uh, uh, do that philosophy, you know, simulate it. But if there's an exercise that embodies the change, then you gradually become what you may have many years ago conceptualized you would like to be. I love I love the analogy with the sun. Uh, I just have to know is is that ball that orange and yellow ball uh, on the cover of Effortless Mastery when it was originally released? Is that the sun there? I think that was the idea. I don't know if I was thinking of it exactly as a sun, but I was thinking of it as an energy. You know, we made that with an early me and my friend. It's funny what a homespun book that was and what happened to it. We made that my friend with an early. Uh, you know, a graphic art program. He put the thing in and then he, you know, actually originally the first book was blue. And then the inside was, I think, a dark blue. And it just looked dark to me. So I think the second printing, it went orange, yellow, you know, borders. And a few people have shown me the the blue book. They had it when it first came out. So that's interesting. Yeah, it is like that. that. That's I mean, I understand it more today than when I was there with my friend using rudimentary graphic arts. Or oh, take that circle, put it in there. You know, make that yellow. Make that. Ooh, that's great, isn't it? You know, we're talking about the '90s, and you know, so yeah, that that's what it represents. Absolutely. 
Well, it's even funny how you, you mentioned that you uncovered even more of the meaning behind that. It's like you're going those extra levels even now uh, with the meaning there, which, which I think is beautiful. You were mentioning something a minute ago about just being in the moment. Um, and, and I think about that is that, that deprogramming we need to reprogram, right? We, we always have those expectations of what do our teachers, what do our parents, what is everyone else around us? What are they going to think of this? And I know you've written extensively about this, and I just think this is such an important part because so many people are walking around with these burdens on their shoulders um, of the people and expectations around them. I would I would love to just double click on this with you for a minute. Well, you see, I the the pandemic, I've talked to people who have been had a very heavy heart. First of all, I've talked to people who have been affected, and I would never judge. I don't think I have any kind of. Uh, special detachment if really bad things happen to me. I would experience all the pain anyone else would. But don't forget, 99% of your life, day after day, nothing bad is happening. How many of those days have we thrown away contemplating things that made us sad or scared? So how much of life is wasted thinking about the future or regretting the past? So to me, the dominant religion in the moment is being in the moment. So under under uh, these circumstances, I also talked to many people who had a very heavy heart emotionally through the whole thing, but nothing bad actually happened to them. So I know they're empathizing, but the question is, what did it do to their life? It, they weren't sick, and they there's two hardships from this that you feel for people, either health or financial, pretty much. That's the the two things, you know, that, that people have had tragedy. But I talked to people that were walking around like this all the time because of the pandemic and because of the president at the time. It's probably people walking around that way because of the president of this time, but not for me, but, you know, for that time. And they just insisted on having a heavy heart. Um, and... I said, I can't afford that. I can't be of help to others if I'm trudging around. So many people would lead the conversation. I'd say, how are you doing? Well, under these really weird times we're having, you know, I said, how are you doing? You know, um, And I have to say, all it was was time. If you weren't affected, emotion, if you weren't affected physically or financially, then all it was was a long period of time. And if you used it to keep practicing getting in the moment, it could have been, and I did talk to a few people like this too. They don't like to admit it in public because we're aware of the real experiences. Not going to have a lot of sympathy for people that made themselves sad and heavy hearted. They could have just shut the radio off or shut the internet, turn the, close the computer. They didn't have to do that. But for the people who are actually sick or, you know, financially destroyed you know but we would admit say this has been the, the best time of my life you know i'm not going anywhere i've always been traveling i haven't been going anywhere i wake up i read some spiritual stuff to remind me the truth i just want to know the truth so no matter how the sun so no matter how far i get away from it during the day i know it doesn't really matter because i could do the worst thing in the world and i'm still the sun you know and the more i think about that the more the lower stuff has less weight to it and I have more negotiating power to get closer 
to the sun, hmm. you know. So this very period has been one of the most fertile. It started with me finishing the second book, which was almost done anyway. Then, it, and then I did a lot of teaching. That was the gift. I decided that everybody at Berkeley, where I teach Berkeley College of Music, first of all, I was afraid they'd all quit, and then I might not have a job. But also, heart-wise, I thought anybody that has the courage to keep going to school, sitting in the bedroom of their parents' house again after they were at school or, or sitting on the couch in their apartment, they should get something from this that they wouldn't have gotten had there not been a pandemic and a quarantine. And I decided to mentor anybody from the school, teachers, which I often work with, teachers or students. I would work off the clock. I worked through the summer of 2020. I don't, I'm not hired. I'm hired for the semesters. I do three days of work in the summer. But I saw five or six hours a day, different students and teachers. And I just worked with effortless mastery with them and helped them get you know, diffuse the clouds and get closer to the sun of their music, of their right to play, of their, all you got to do is practice enjoying it. A person that plays shitty and enjoys it is doing it the right way. And a person that plays reasonably well and is obsessing about it hmm. is really wasting their life. Yeah. So I saw people transform in Zoom, student after student, groups after groups. And it elevated me and it had me continue my work on myself when I wasn't in front of the computer. And then at the beginning of this summer, I started writing because I have a project that is going to be performed by orchestras next year. And all I've basically done, except for an online course, which I did outside of the school, and one week in Mexico, all I did all summer is wake up and write this music. And I haven't written music like with this kind of stream of one thing in my mind. And maybe never. And I've never written better music than I'm writing right now. And I'm thinking, wow, you've actually become the person you wanted to be 50 years ago. <laughs> I, I would actually love it. Believe Kenny, it or not. Yeah. If you could describe what this writing process even looks like. Well, yeah, it starts with, uh, well, it's for the hundredth birthday of Toots Steelman. I don't know if you know who that is. He was the greatest harmonica player and the most famous in the world. Stevie Wonder said he played harmonica because he heard Trent Steelman. He had a hit in the 50s called Bluesette, where he also a guitar player, and he played and, and, and whistled. It was a big hit in the 50s, and then he was on shows. He was a harmonica player on Sesame Street, harmonica player on Midnight Cowboy. You know, some of the most iconic harmonica things was him. But he was also a jazz great and a Brazilian master, even though he's Belgian. So they're doing big stuff next year. And I'm writing this orchestral music to be played next year. But for the first time, I decided to start basically a year early so that I wasn't just writing to fulfill a deadline. I wanted to see if I could keep the sun, you know, actually, this was my concept. If Toots is roaming around a different dimension now, what does music sound like there? And would I have the chops to orchestrate something to make it feel like that? And I brought in somebody that's been helping me on the orchestration side. So here's but here's how I compose. I start writing without questioning if it's any good. And then when I lose that easy flow to keep writing, I shut the computer down. I write on computer because I'm a lefty and I have terrible handwriting. And it's just hard to write music. You have to keep your wrist up 
because you're moving to the right. So, and, and as soon as it feels like it's important that there's a right way and a wrong way, I shut it down and leave. When I come back, it's obvious what I should do next. So then I do that and I keep going. And then sometimes it just goes and goes. And then you get to a point where in the middle of the process, it shows me what it was I'm doing. So now I'm going to go back retroactively and make it look like that's what I was always going to do. So it's very much effortless mastery for composing. I let things compose themselves. See, the big fear with doing anything is that you'll do it badly. That's the only thing that makes drama out of trying to do things, you know, whether it's sports or music. Trying to do it right creates a drama that's been superimposed, a cloud in front of the sun. What would be the sun or what would be the space? doesn't matter how good you do it. The fact that you're doing it is a success. From the ego, it doesn't have any meaning unless you're doing it well. Now, what's wrong with that seems reasonable. The problem is, in trying to do it well, most people stumble. And they find that they do it better when they, for a moment, didn't try to do it well. So with that thing being such a human nature, we practice not needing to do it well, but rejoicing in the doing, which leads to doing it well, more consistently than they ever have. And that's the practice. So in writing, it's the same thing. If I think this has got to be great music, and I had my moments, but the moments that I thought this has got to be great music because this is going to be really celebrated, I couldn't write anything. Hmm. So what good is, if you have all this respect for it, all this awe, and you can't write, what good is it? You might as well just go, oh, F it, you know. Okay, and shut it off. You might as well just write something. And later on, you find a thread, but that's still part of it, but it never would have been part of it, or things come together so, in a way, organically. Because when you plan things, with a lot of composers, except the greatest ones, I can hear their thinking, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that. And I can hear what they're doing. You know, you don't really want to see the creases in the wallpaper. You just want to believe from the whole journey. So when I write out of sequence, I don't know why I'm writing this, but that's what's coming out now. And then later on, it fits here in a way I would have never thought of. It actually gives you the feeling like, you know, you look out and you see leaves blowing. They don't conform to a pattern you can pick up on. You don't sense them trying to organize it into different movements. And you don't sense a Sonata Allegro form where they have to return to the original way they were shaking. All that stuff was made up by humans. We don't need it at all. Music can move just like leaves. Hmm. As long as it, and so when I see this come together, it just kind of moves without my intention because whatever I wrote at the time I wrote it, I didn't mean it to be that. Yeah, Kenny, I would love to know how we should think through. Because Does that make sense? I, it, it does. I want to dive a little deeper on this because I think one of the problems a lot of people are going to have is, is you mentioned when you're not playing in the space, you just pull your hands up, you walk away. And so I think a lot of people are going to wonder, well, how can you put in the necessary amount of time and practice to develop a skill? Let's let's call it even just golf. Like so, someone to hit a 300-yard drive, you're going to need a number of repetitions. And I'm wondering, okay. can, can you reach that level of mastery 
without actually putting that that focused time in um, as opposed to reach that level of mastery faster. If you do this, you get up there, you go into the space, you move your hands. You're not concerned how you hit the ball, if you hit the ball or where it goes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just do that. Right. And as long as you're in the space, you recreate that thing and you will find out something that the body will program itself to do it on a much higher and economical level. In other words, the body doesn't have an ego about it. If your intention is there that you're going to zoom into it, maybe you do it different ways. Maybe one time you go so slow and you're in the space that you have time to see exactly what the trajectory is before that uh, thing hits the ball, right? Then you take a break, you go into the space, and then you see if your arm's got it yet. And if it doesn't, from the space, you have no regrets. Maybe you do that a few times. If you've lost patience for learning it from the space, you walk away, but you might come back in five minutes or you might come back in 10 minutes. You might do a bunch of repetitions, but practice repeating without tightening yourself up to make sure you do the right thing. Hmm. Because that where might be functional, but it'll always be below the guys, when the women and men, for whom the body does it. So if you want to train the body to do it, you may get there by trying, or you may end up on one of those sub-levels that's good, but you notice the difference between where you're doing something. What's the difference between you and this guy? It's not just better. For what you're doing, for what he's doing, the same act is easier. Why is it easier? Because that's become muscle memory. How's it become muscle memory? Keep the mind out of it, and the muscles will, you know, conform to the act and then it'd be more dependable because it just feels like, and that's what actually the highest sports guys do. I mean, batters are looking for a certain thing. Uh, Pitchers are looking for an arm slot so that they don't have to think about it. So it's not like there isn't some thinking at a certain point, but what you want to do is just let it fly and see if the body's doing that yet. Because if the body's not doing it and you have to make the body do it, you might be good, but you'll never be great. And, if you still have to manage the act, then you probably won't manage it as well when people are watching you yeah. or when there's money on the line. So the best thing to do is to train so that you're not doing it. If you start with this idea, I'm not doing it, the body's doing it. So my new book is called Becoming the Instrument. It means it goes beyond being a, the player, become the instrument that plays the instrument, then learn that, teach that instrument Allow that instrument to learn the most efficient way of playing the instrument. And that raises your technique a level above anything you could have done with effort. So effortless mastery is like using a fork. You're precise every time. You know, you may think nothing of that, but there's only, I don't think there's any other species in the world that's even capable of it. And if they are, it takes a lot of concentration. That's effortless mastery. You could be doing five things and you still never miss your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want every act you're doing in sports or music to be as close to that as possible. Who is playing? 
for those on audio only, Kenny was just staring directly at the camera. Oh, um, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, ab- absolutely beautiful. Believe me, I, I think anyone even just listening. Right, but you see, that's, I want that in my equipment. Mm-hmm. I want the body to do it. That doesn't mean now my mind, having been ridden of the negative things that pull my playing down, can appreciate and listen. I can, the simplest explanation in music for effortless mastery is the body plays... It took a lot of teaching to get this simple. The body plays, the mind receives. Now, if the mind receives with gratitude or intoxication, it gets pretty spiritual. But when the mind doesn't receive because it's busy quantifying, qualifying, and in general judging, that's a very inhibited performance. And that was what relates to anything anybody tries to do that has any coordination to it. I think a great visual for all this, I'm sure we, we've seen those great sportsmen or even someone presenting something. Um, and it's just so effortless. Like, it's, it's like, how is that even happening? Um, that, that's what I think about um, when, when people, you talk about going to that next level. That's that next level. You, you mentioned visualization earlier, actually. Um, I think about someone who I, I know has studied a, a lot of Zen, a lot of ancient tradition, um, is the, the Lakers and Bulls coach, former coach Phil Jackson. And he used to sit right. before a game for 45 minutes and visualize. Did you do any type of visualization or do you do any type of visualization practices? You know, I did it. When, uh, in the 80s when I said like I was trying to practice ring substance it was an early attempt and I can't say I had some results that I would want to teach or share because I, I don't think I did I like the idea that you can visualize the life you want but I found some flaws in that idea too oh what, what are the flaws you found well you start visualizing it but have you let go of needing it to happen hmm. it's very easy once you start visualize to also get attached to it happening and then you find you really visualize it's like you said i i want this reward and i'm let go of it but you keep looking over your shoulder <laughs> yeah, right. you know <laughs> i've been a good boy where's the reward where's my abundance you know i found that that's an easy thing to fall into i never did visualize a gig in fact it's quite the opposite I might be watching a Twilight Zone a second before I get onto onto stage of Carnegie Hall. It doesn't have to be Twilight Zone. It could be Mad Men or it could be The Crown. Or, or I might just be really wasting my time because I want nothing. I don't really want to anticipate anything. I want to walk out there and find out what's happening to me right that moment and not get in the way. And then I find that the body reacts uh organically to exactly what that situation is. Now, I don't, that doesn't, for other people, it might, I, I shared a dressing room with Herbie Hancock and he chanted nam Yoho renge kyo for about 50 minutes before we went on. And that's what he likes to do. Hmm. What I like to do is like have no thought of it whatsoever. And I walk out and I'm, I remember one time I was performing in Europe and I fell asleep in the dressing room and it was a really nice nap. And someone woke me up, you're on like that, you know? And I went, oh my God. And I woke up and I literally just kind of strolled over the piano and I wasn't even there yet before my hands started to play and they were playing their ass off. It was great. I didn't want to wake up. The one thing I learned is to stay out of the way and imagine the hands play by themselves seems to cover everything that all the other disciplines, physical and mental, uh, try to do from the outside. From the inside, if you're looking at hands and they're not yours, and so therefore, why would if you were watching someone's hands play, 
why would you have any desire? It's not, it doesn't affect you whether they play good or not, right? If you can really get all the way over to that, of course, they'll never play bad again. Yeah. I'm wondering for you, what held you back the most? I, one of the things I see a lot is just even self-limiting beliefs. People don't even believe they're capable of playing things or one of the things you write about is fear of ghosts or even in- inadequacy. For, for you, were there any big limiting factors? Yeah, it was all life stuff though, not yeah. music. I mean, I had my resentments. I said, I've done records that I thought should have won Grammys. I've done records I thought everybody should know. I think they're as great as the records everybody does know. You know, I could get on that. I could start to focus on that cloud. But again, it's a cloud because whatever is happening is what's happening. You know, I could get on a negative thing, but mostly my biggest negatives were being able to be happy, not being anxious, not being depressed, not being jealous of somebody, not wanting to escape. Oh, man. Uh, well, I think when I was a kid before 10 years old, you know, my parents babysat. We're talking about the 50s. Parents babysat their, sat their kids with television. What a great aid for them. Suddenly, if you put the kid in front of the television, they would just sit there like a, like a, not a robot, but, you Zombie, know, like. Yeah, just. Yeah. And then they were quiet. The problem is that becomes the meditation for a child, but it's not tuning in. It's actually detaching and, and tuning out and becoming numb. And then you get addicted to that numbness. Mm. And I think that numbness is what I've been fighting all my life. I wanted to feel what a human being could feel. And literally that's been a, an entire life thing that held me back. Didn't help me back from music actually helped me in music. I could play something and everybody in the room was crying, but me. And I went, wow, geez. Okay. You know, I'm looking around. Okay. You know, even my wife would come over and did you see what you, I said, no, I don't know what, what I just did. You know, I just, it's very strange. It doesn't go along lines that I can recommend to anybody else, but I could be not even involved and the effect of the music. I don't know why it's like that but it has been that way. But in my life, I wanted more. Hmm. So any, to answer your question has nothing to do with music. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was great music when I was completely messed up and, uh, but it could have been greater and I could have written more of it or whatever. I think it is even greater now that my life has come into agreement with it, but not, more of a life. Yeah. Not, not to take a detour here. I'm wondering for you personally, what is the greatest piece of music you've ever listened to? Wow. Well, um, you know, when he, you mean what, what, what for me, yeah, you know, for whatever you. had the greatest effect on me because yep. you could go there forever. A couple of things that are not probably even well known at all. One is uh, there was a composer, Michelle uh, uh, Colombier, Colombier, who uh, I always, I always admired. Uh, he was, he really wrote movie soundtracks, but he was a very brilliant guy. He could have written a symphony. If you wanted to write a symphony, just write your symphony. But he really knew how to orchestrate, you know. Well, he did a record called Wings, not the Paul McCartney thing, Wings. And for me, that was and probably is still my favorite record. It has or- one orchestra, a big band, a rock ensemble, a percussion ensemble. Herb Albert gave him unlimited budget. He said, write something that's the whole world. So he used kind of his um, his movie scoring chops, plus his knowledge of Stravinsky, Mozart, you know. 
and he makes this journey. The, you know, the, the, be- the closest thing I can say is like, it's like um, Sergeant Peppers or Days of Future Past for musicians, because one thing just morphs into another, and it's just the most amazing. Now, if you have a short attention span, which is what I had, this is perfect, because before you even lose the thread of what that was, it becomes this. So that is probably my favorite record. If I put it on now, I would probably be hooked until it was over, mm. which is only about 20 minutes because it was a record, you know. The second, uh, another thing was, of course, everybody knows Antonio Carlos Jobim. But one thing that probably most people don't know is a piece he did way back when he was recording for Brazilian companies called Matita Pere. You can find it on YouTube now. M-A-T-I-T-A, Matita Pere. And that whole record is called Matita Pere. It's just one incredible piece after another. But that song, which he said was, I don't remember the author, but there's a very enigmatic Brazilian author that was very hard to understand. And this was his, he actually, if you look for it, discusses that this is based on what this author was talking about, you know, what hit one of his books. And it's just this journey. And it's just the most beautiful thing. It is in my top five favorite pieces. And after that, I think uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, Blue and Song of a Seagull. Her, I think their first two records are first and third. Before she got jazzy, those are, entire records are my favorite music. And she redid one of her songs. You know, she did a song in the beginning of her career called Both Sides Now. And it sounds like a folk singer, moons and dunes and Ferris wheels. But she had the uh, distinct privilege of doing it again. I mean, she's still alive, but as an older woman with the Metropole Orchestra. And check that out. Joni Mitchell with the Metropole Orchestra singing both sides now. Part of it is her. It sounds like she's been on both sides now, but the arrangement done by Vince Mendoza is so mystical. It's probably my favorite arrangement of all time. And it's very simple in a way, but it's so mystical. And these things I'm telling you, there are just very few things. If I put them on, whatever I, whatever clouds are over my head, they disappear and I melt into the music. But there aren't many pieces like that. Even in music, I find myself thinking and not really just drawing the music. It has to grab me a certain way. And it doesn't mean that it would grab anyone else that way. Hmm. So speaking of grabbing you a certain way, uh, I'm wondering of, of different teachers. Uh, I, I know you've written about, um, and please correct me if I'm getting the pronunciation wrong, Madame Shaloff, um, an early teacher of yours. I'm, I'm just wondering about some of the, these people who've come into your life and just kind of had that that, that grip on you, that, that have fundamentally changed you. Well, I think that's why I was meant to do this. When I went to Boston, Madame Shaloff, that's all. You said it right. It's the Madame part. Um, <laughs> she was kind of a spiritual piano teacher. Uh, I'm not, it was almost like if you read Zen and the Art of Archery, yeah. learning to play one note with her was like this guy learning to release a bow, release a, an arrow. And uh, it taught me so much. I don't even know if I got the right thing, but it taught me to be in this space. And also the spirit relationship between where my mind and body is at and when I drop a finger on a key. But then the next teacher I had was in Brazil, João Assis Brasil was his name. And he had come at it from a different way. He had 
been a classical pianist practicing eight hours a day. He had joined, uh, I mean, he had uh, been in competitions. I believe he had won competitions and he had a nervous breakdown. And he had to start all over again with an exercise like hers, but it was all five fingers. You just drop your fingers. And the important thing is to be kind to yourself, not to let that build up. And from there, he started to play things again. And 10 minutes became 20 and 20 became an hour. By the time I met him and I had the good fortune of living with him for about three or four months because uh, I was playing with his brother and we lived in his family's house in Briar, Botafogo. Um, he just kept instructing me on the, he could sit there and play list. And like, I just played that thing for you. And his face looked like he was just enjoying listening to it. <laughs> I mean, the fingers were doing this incredible stuff, but he, he was just enjoying it. Right. And I, I'm going, how are you doing that? And it started with this exercise and he wanted me to do nothing but this exercise for two weeks. But after six days, I played hooky and went to this woman's party and played duo with my friend. But after even six days of just dropping my fingers on the keys, I started to play and they started to play before I did. Hmm. And they were playing better than I do. And that was the epiphany that changed my life. I think from that point on, I said, whatever that is, I want to keep practicing for yeah. that. And uh, everything unfolded from that. That was the most pivotal moment, just playing at that party and seeing my hands are playing stuff that I studied, but I've never played them. And they're playing with a better tone, more balance, because I'm not, my ego's not begging them to play better. You know, everything unfolded from that moment on. Kenny, were you aware in that moment uh, of the magnitude and the importance of that? particular moment on the rest of your life no you know i was the kind of guy that couldn't practice the way everybody else was i had h hdad i had very bad tourettes when i was a child so bad that they used to send me home from school because of the noises or the movements i made mm -hmm. and the last thing i could do is sit there for hours practicing so i was getting by on my talent only with this kind of practicing i found i could sit there while I thought it was a solution for how I may be eventually able to practice at least an hour uh, and focus on something because it just felt like another part of my brain, hmm. not the part that was so riddled with, uh, you know, attention deficit and, and, and Tourette's. Um, I just thought it might really solve my own personal problem. Hmm. And for the next seven or eight years, I practiced it myself and found myself uh, you know, I didn't get to practice 10 hours a day. I've never done that. But but I did find myself able to look at some things and practice them with a clarity because I wasn't coming from that part of my brain that where I couldn't, where I wanted to scratch my, and it, I just had to get, uh, get up, get off the piano bench. I couldn't stay there unless I was performing and I could do that all day. Hmm. But by myself, there was a loneliness and just not wanting to do it. So in the next seven or eight years, just practicing, and then I would make some progress and then I would sort of lose it. And then I'd go back to that exercise again. So I would, which is what I recommend to people now, when you don't know where you're at, start over. Hmm. You keep watering the root. That's how you make a plant grow or a new neurological direction, which is how I understand it now. But um, so after about seven or eight years, people were remarking to me, man, you don't look like you're doing anything. What's going on, you know? And so I started to give a few private lessons because people want to know what I was doing. And I, then I started with this exercise, but also my intuition took over as if someone else was teaching and they knew what to say and they knew what to do. Hmm. 
and then that grew. And then uh, I did a class. That's a, this is a long story, but I did a class at the new school and everybody kind of flipped out. So they had me subbing for people all the time. Then I started teaching there. And from there, I did a couple of lectures and a, a lecture became uh, somebody recorded and they sent it to band directors all around the country. So people are starting to quote me in my what I said which is very strange for a musician who only really cares about what he plays. Hmm. And eventually there was enough material in my lectures to write a book. And from that point on, it uh, took another level completely. I, I know this isn't your, your domain expertise. I'm kind of thinking about the, the entrepreneur who's listening, the, the business owner, the investor. Um, what would practice look like in this context, thinking about the five fingers dropping in those types of worlds and domains? Well, you know, practice, people just practice things, but there's a great power in practicing, practicing. So for example, you want to find, you know, the, the thing we didn't really cover that much is that the answer to this stuff is what do you do? Everything I described in the first part of the book, people go, oh yeah, I've that happens to me. They say, how did he know that? You know, but the space, is the pure self. It's the sun without the clouds. Every time you get into the space, like just watching yourself breathe for 20 seconds, you're just in the space. You think of it as something you have to go through this, this trudging for years. And I think that if there is a God, that he put this thing in there, you could immediately go there. Just immediately focus on the source of your life, which is undeniable. Just watch that thing breathe. So, if you agree that the space is the most in the moment intuitive part of yourself, practice practicing without leaving the space. So if you're an investor, take 10 bucks, go into the space and do anything with it that the space tells you to do. Oh, okay, boom, boom, you know, boom. In other words, practice without consequences. So what you're practicing is not whether not success in your action, but doing it from the space. So if you're uh if you're um a CEO, you just practice the space and then go be a CEO in meetings, come back to your breathing whenever you can, instead of getting all wrapped up in what everyone's saying and whether or not you really know what they should say. And after all, they work for you and blah, blah, blah. These clouds can always figure a way to insert themselves again. There are many exercises for bringing one right back into the moment and exposing those things as temporary. In fact, exposing them as delusions. So you need a practice of some kind. Eckhart Tolle is kind of the master. I don't really follow him, but if you watch him on YouTube, it's all about the power of now. That's his book, which was an overwhelming success. Any exercise that brings you right back to now will release you from the delusion you're being bound by, even temporarily, and it'll remind the mind over and over again that these are illusions and they can be dropped. And the more you practice, the more you get comfortable with dropping them and going back into the space. The truth of the space is this moment. And in this moment, none of that stuff exists. Hmm. Are, along the lines of this, are, are there a lot of other things you see teachers get wrong with students that we haven't covered yet? That's just readily apparent? Oh yeah, well, I, I, only, I only watch music teachers, but yeah, all over the place. For one thing, from the first lesson all the way through getting your doctorate in music, no, no one ever mentions the word ease. They want you to learn something, but why doesn't it sound good when you play it, even though you didn't make a mistake? 
because until it's relatively easy to play, it won't be musical and it won't be intuitive. Now that's the same thing with golf or anything. Okay, now you've learned how to do something. Now get out of the way and let the body learn to do it with such regularity that it's relatively easy for you to do. That makes you above the competitor. At one point, the difference between one level and another is just the ease of doing it. Because everybody knows the same thing at a certain level. So what else explains it? And yet, learning to play something with ease is never mentioned once. Also, the assignment of way too much material, which just ensures that almost everyone but the most talented of us will only semi-learn everything, just enough to know they're not doing it right, and develop a negative thing about themselves that I practice, but I don't get better. I guess I'm not very talented, which they have to submerge because whenever they think that, they're in pain. So they submerge it with what? It could be alcohol. It could be partying. It could be rationale. A lot of people are living in a sort of a purgatory because music has been nothing but... Am I doing it well? Am I new? Oh, now I didn't do it well. Oh, I'm doing it well. They miss the entire gift of music. I'd rather play badly and constantly be aware of the gift that it is just to play than play okay and be constantly on this, you know, balancing myself like Humpty Dumpty, trying not to fall off the wall and feel and crack. You know, that's just one of many. Don't get me started on you know, that. No, no, no. Almost all of it is backwards. Yeah. Well, which is not why it's not why it doesn't work. It works for the most talented, but that's why it doesn't work for the majority of the rest of us. Yeah. I, I know one of the, the problems a majority does face is what should they dedicate their time to, right? Like if they're going to try to achieve mastery w- within something, a lot of people are wondering, is this something I want to commit years to? And then we, we always battle that uh, initially early on. I mean, sometimes it can be frustrating. I know this has to do with ego and everything, but how do you know if what you're dedicating your time and practice to is actually the thing you should be dedicating your time and practice to? Because I don't think it matters what you dedicate your time and practice to. Once you have reached a space, that's the point of it. Yeah. The point of it is not doing it well. The point is learning this, how to do this journey. And it's a success. I, I think once you really get in the process, you stop asking yourself that question. So you could be a golfer, you could be a musician. If you notice that you have no particular talent for something, then you evaluate it whether you should elevate it to a hobby. I think of a hobby as an elevation because you're not putting your ego on the line every time you do it. As a hobby, who cares if you're getting better or not? If you enjoy the process, it's not about that. Now, if you're talking about dedicating yourself to what you're going to do in life, it's kind of not easy to decide what that's going to be because that's in the future. But if something keeps drawing you, then you think you want to learn how to do that. And there you can learn it in a much more hyper-effective way by learning how to do it from the space, learning how to practice in the space, learning how to uh, act from the space. Actually, it seems like a slower path, but it gets you where you want to go much faster. Hmm. Have you come across a lot lot of musicians that end up just falling out of love with with the music? And if so, what does that look like? Well, it means you're still doing it, but you kind of, you know, I mean, you see it in teachers. Not, Not everybody chose to be a teacher. In fact, you would find that uh, uh, unless they went for an de- educational degree in music, there's a lot of teachers teach because they had some reputation as a player. Very few of them 
would have been teaching if they had had enough gigs. So right off the bat, they feel like they're doing something by default rather than something by choice. And I was the same way, except I found a real passion in my teaching, and some do. But uh, the look of it is someone who's vaguely negative. They'll take the negative if they can. They're half-heartedly positive, and it's much more uh, comforting to reside somewhere in a negative, not negative enough so that people would call you negative, just, you know, not hoping for too much. But it's because they really, and they really haven't faced the fact that they don't love music anymore, but music is what they do. Is that a natural progression? Well, I mean, it's as, it could happen. And it happened to me. I got to the point where I didn't care about the music at all. But because of Effortless Mastery, I played better than ever. Hmm. It's really weird. The less I care, see, it can go both ways. Yeah, yeah. If you care about it and you're not playing the way you want to play, then you actually start to hate music. Or you're just out of it, but you still have to go play your gigs or whatever. If you learn that not caring allows another facility to play the music, you may throw it away completely and find that you're playing with such light, like lightning every time you play because it's not you, it's the hands. Hmm. I had that experience when I was in Mexico. I was just, I was teaching and you had to wear masks the whole time. I have not, I've yet next week, starting next week, I'll find out what that's like, but I had yet to teach with a mask on because I've been teaching for an hour, a year and a half on Zoom. And I kept like gasping for air, you know, really. And I just kept ripping it off. I said, hell with it, you know, if I die, I die. I, I, I just, then I put it on again, you know. So I'm in this one place where somebody was doing a, uh, master class, and I was supposed to go on right after her. And again, I've got the mask on, but I'm just like, so Ty, walk out, I get some air, I come back in. I'm almost, I'm almost fainting, sitting there waiting for her to be done. And I kind of fell asleep, which was great. And I wake up, stick plodding, you know. And the person looks at me and goes, you know, now, now you, not even take a break. And I walked up there, honestly, kind of like dredged up, like I had my bedroom slippers on or something. And I, I wasn't, I had just been talking for hours. So I just didn't feel like talking. I sat down at the piano and I put my hands on the piano and they started to play from where I was at. And they built a piece that was about 15 minutes long where they were doing this phenomenal stuff. And I was still just sitting there watching them and just resting because I was tired and breathing. And then I did a little talking. That was it. But it was amazing to see when I finally give up what the body will do with the music. And then I was kind of getting the enjoyment of what I was hearing. You know, I saw that there's that, uh, a documentary on right now called summer of soul. Have you seen it? I have not. No. Yeah. There's a lot of noise about it, a lot of publicity. Basically it was a festival in Harlem 50 years ago. And for 50 years, all the video was sitting in somebody's basement. And Questlove, the guy, I don't know if he found it, but he produced it. The guy from the uh, Colbert show, The Late Show, yep. found this video and he produced it. It's a whole documentary that shows a lot of it. And it's amazing because nobody even knew that festival existed. But Mahalia Jackson plays once. She was a great uh, gospel singer, if you don't know the name, Mahalia Jackson. And she gets there and it was outside. It was probably warm. It was summer. And she tells... Maple, Maple uh, what's her name? Mabel Saples or something. This other gospel singer who worshiped 
Mahalia Jackson was playing piano for, or she was she was going to sing with her. And Mahalia leads over, and you see the video. And this woman's narrating now. She says, Mahalia said, I don't feel very good. You should start this song. So instead of Mahalia Jackson getting up, this other woman starts to sing it, you know. Now, Mahalia Jackson was, like, very heavy. It was probably hot, you know, and she, maybe she felt faint. And who knows? Heart condition? Who knows? Breathing, right? And this woman starts to sing, and she's a little younger, and she's not as heavy, and she's really doing the gospel thing. All of a sudden, Mahalia gets up, and she starts to sing, and you can still see she's coming out of the haze of not feeling well. And very quickly, she is on this highest level of spirit and means every word that she says and repeats and sings it and growls it. And in a minute, she had totally transcended her physical condition. So there is history as long as as old as humanity itself of spirit rising above the physical and extending the performance of the physical like oil separates from water. And effortless mastery then is the study of how to leave the body alone, let, let the spirit go into an observation place while the body learns. And then the spirit can enjoy the performance mm -hmm. instead of block the performance. We said this conversation's about life. I'm wondering for you, how much time are you spending in that space outside of music? just in everyday life? I'd say now a great deal. Like, you know, um, I, what used to happen is that I was only in a space when I was performing or teaching. Then I noticed when I started to teach at Berkeley six, seven years ago, when you're doing whole semesters and two, four hours in a row every day, well, three days a week, I'd walk out and on the sidewalk and say, wait a minute, I'm still there. Hmm. This is what I was looking for in life. But then I'd lose it. You know, it's been an evolution since I started teaching at courses where more and more I forget to go back the other way. I just be that, yeah. which changes my whole perspective. In other words, the love is still there, wanting to hear people talk what they have to say, always wanting to be helpful and feeling the light. And I would say in the last two years, much of it because of pandemic, quarantine, and more teaching than ever. So because I was just trying to help people, anybody to get through the school by mentoring them. Um, now it's pretty much how I go through my day. My wife's still trying to get used to it. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to live with someone who suddenly doesn't typically doesn't feel any problems. Yeah. All they feel is it's not that there are no problems, but in this moment, they're never, it doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter how many, I'm so sorry to say, it doesn't matter how many people died that day. At least if it wasn't somebody you knew or you, it doesn't change anything. You know, the moment always has this light in it. It only gets clouded up when you start mixing in by self-will the past or the future. I know one thing you mentioned over this past year, you spent a lot of time, especially in the morning reading. Any new books you've come across or just thoroughly enjoyed, even ones you went back to? Well, another gift for the last year and a half is I met somebody who I thought was really into the uh, Course of Miracles. And that's supposedly Jesus writing through somebody who was an atheist and a therapist, uh, correcting all the horrible. And I think the greatest tragedies on earth have been the misreading of the Bible and perhaps the Quran. If, if any Islamic terrorists see that in the Quran, 
there's misreading it as much as Christian fundamentalists yeah. are misreading it here. Anybody that thinks they should have domain over anyone else's behavior, obviously is misreading. And so the premise of this book, whether one believes it or not, is that Jesus came back and gave this course, like 300, uh, 365 lessons for 365 days, but also many pages of preface and afterwards. And he's basically correcting all the misunderstandings. And given what I believe is the truth, I, I believed it before I saw that. But what I liked about The Course in Miracles is that it doesn't deal like I'm also a yogi. I have a guru. But there's a lot of facets to that. There are certain holidays, different deities. There's a lot to embrace, uh, certain chants, certain practices, mantras. It's all great because it's all meant to take you to that same place. But I think I was just ready in life for something to just hit me every day in the head. Hmm. Hey, mother, the, man, the thing you're seeing, it's an illusion. Just see if you can have a moment where you really see who you are and what this is. And I've been going for those moments in the last year and a half, and they expand. So I like just being one thing. Okay, I'm looking around. All I, I, I just, just be here. You know, be here now. This is not new stuff. But I once you decide that that's more important than anything else you're doing, which I had the luxury of doing without having to travel, without having to show up to gigs, without, you know, all I had to do is, Oh, I'm not here now. No wonder I'm I'm feeling that weight again. And breathe into it. I found my own personal exercise. And then I found that this was also the best exercise for my class. So it all just kind of happens by itself. You know, there's a great Buddhist saying, which I, I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm not a anything. But I, uh, I quoted it in the book. It says, do nothing and nothing shall be left undone. That's really worth contemplating. Because the face value of it seems impossible. That's how you know there's a depth there yeah. that you can concentrate on. And uh, that's the idea. There's something afoot, and I can play a part in it. In other words, I have another analogy for me is I have a very short life if I'm a separate drop on the kitchen table, probably a few seconds. If I'm a drop in the ocean, I'll live forever. <laughs> so that may all be classic Buddhism, but it would take me one step away from it to think of it as Buddhism. Yeah. It's just me. And it's just common sense. That's beautiful. Kenny, if you, if you could do this w with anyone, dead or alive, sit down, long form conversation, um, who would you love to have that conversation with? Maybe Mozart or Beethoven. Yeah. You know, what was it like for you? I think for Beethoven, it was, I think I composed not on the level, but more along the lines and process of a Beethoven, because I think I would rework things and rework things, and then they turn into something else. Whereas you probably never heard of Thad Jones, but to me, he was one of the greatest jazz big band writers of the 20th century, definitely on anybody's level, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, whatever. And he would write scores and he would do the parts <laughs> without hearing them. You know, I could do that too. But I mean, what his draft was, was it. And I'm told that that's the way Mozart was. Whereas uh, Beethoven would rework things and rework things, and then they'd morph into what he wanted. But they they had that depth because they had that polish. And evidently Mozart would just do it. Like Thad would do the saxes, and he'd put the trumpets over there. And, uh, you know. So I would want to talk with either or both of them, you know, to find out how that, how that worked out for them, I guess. Yeah. 
Kenny, we're, we're going to make sure everything's linked up, uh, both with Effortless Mastery and the new book, but, but where do you want to direct listeners? Uh, where can they, they stay in, in, in touch with what you're working on, what you're doing, uh, and continue to learn from you? Well, first of all, if they go, if they, they should uh, put their name on my mailing list. And that way, when I very often I do uh, forums online, now that's been introduced, that's going to continue, and everybody's invited. I'm going to be doing, I think, later this week, uh, a webinar, but it's on harmony, limitless harmony, I call it, where you can harmonize anything, anywhere. Vivian has the information. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm actually doing the webinar this week, I'm pretty sure, if not next week. And uh, then we're going to give an online course. If people already know Harmony, I'm going to teach week after week how to attach it effortlessly to stuff that's moving forward without getting stuck trying to do it. Like I just finished a 12-week course about the first two steps of effortless mastery. Um, but if you put, if, if you send us, um, where should I have? I guess send it to me, Kenny Werner Music at Gmail. Kenny Werner Music at Gmail for now. Or get a or get an email from Vivian if you would. Yeah. Vivian's the one they usually contact. She keeps the mailing list, and then you'll know if I'm doing a live forum or if I'm doing a course. You'll also get a newsletter, not too often, about where I'm playing. Actually, that's the address you should have. Uh, I I can't find it right now. If you would get it from Vivian, I would appreciate it. Yeah, of course, we'll have everything linked up uh, in, in the show notes and transcript here. Ken, Kenny, I have to ask. Any chance for even thirty seconds? You could just play a little a little piece for us. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? The minute minute walls, <laughs> but only half of it, you know. No, okay, I'll play something. beautiful thank you for that well kenny warner i i really cannot thank you enough for for everything you've done and then joining us here on what got you there so thank you my pleasure you guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there i hope you guys enjoyed it i really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through if you found value in this the best way you can support the show is giving us a review rating it sharing it with your friends and also sharing on social i can't tell you how much i appreciate it looking forward to you guys listening to another episode